Our scripture reading this morning comes from Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 15. So go ahead and turn there. And if you are willing and able, please stand for the reading of God's word in Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 15. This is God's word. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil, who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and, on, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. And there are some truths that our hearts cannot bear to hear. And a message that God would punish people for in eternity is one of them. The idea of hell seems devastating and terrifying. We'd want to ignore it if we can. Many, if they could, would redefine it. Many have tried to redefine hell. Dostoevsky in The Brothers Karamazov writes, What is hell? I maintain that it is the suffering of being unable to love. And while Jean-Paul Sartre writes, Hell is other people. Oscar Wilde contends, We are each our own devil, and we make this world our hell. But the Bible doesn't leave the question of hell to our own musings. Though the Bible gives us more detail about heaven than it does actually give us detail about hell, what we are given in the Bible, the snippets that we see about hell are scary, terrifying, frightening. It tells us that hell is the hell is real. It is eternal. Its inhabitants suffer 
under and are subjected to God's wrath. And it's inescapable. It's inescapable. There is no room for purgatory to climb your way out. No room for universalism so that everyone will be saved. No room for annihilationalism that we simply cease to exist. And as grim as that sounds, hell also communicates the glory of God, his righteousness, his justice, and also his love. Yes, his love. Because while hell is inescapable, it is avoidable. While we were yet sinners, God sent his beloved son to die uh, for us in our place. The king of glory traveled from his celestial throne to the place of the skull, to Golgotha, to the cross. To subject himself under the fire of God's wrath so that we would not have to know hell, but know joy and righteousness and peace forever. And so as we come this morning to the end of Revelation 20, and yes, there is a heavy word on judgment. One of the most serious, sobering, and tragic passages in the Bible. And yet my hope is that all of us this morning, when we look at this passage, that we would look to Christ that all of us would look to Christ and that we would show forth our faith in the remaining few years that he would have us here. Now, over the past several weeks, we have been working our way through Revelation 20 and the issue of the millennium. And in the last half of this chapter 20, the millennium comes to a close. Beginning in chapter 21, the good news of the new heaven and the new earth are about to break in upon us. And all things will be made new. Death will be no more. There will be no more tears. There will be nothing left that's accursed. But before we get there, God's justice and righteousness must prevail. Before the new heavens and the new earth can be the new heavens and the new earth, evil must be dwelt with. And so beginning in chapter 12 in Revelation, we've encountered several uh, characters, so to speak, in this drama of redemption. We've encountered the dragon that is Satan. We've encountered the, the beast, the Antichrist. We've encountered the false prophet. We've encountered Babylon. And one by one, beginning in chapter 17, they exit. Babylon falls. The prophet and the false prophet and the beast are thrown into the lake of fire. And now, and now, in chapter 20, Jesus ties up loose ends. And two promises are given to us in verses 7 through 15. First is the promise that Jesus will deal with Satan. Jesus will deal with Satan. This is what we see in these First couple verses, 7 through 10, after the millennium, Jesus will deal with Satan. Verse 7, and when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. 
Now, in the sequence of events John presents in chapter 20, Jesus returns to establish his millennial reign. And we saw earlier in the chapter that Satan was bound up and shut and sealed so that he could no longer deceive the nations. But now, at millennial end, is his time to be set free. It signals the end of his incarceration. He is unshackled now from his chains and goes right back to his ways of deceiving the nations. Because that has always been the center of Satan's purposes. He wants to deceive people about God and Christ. He wants to have saving truth hated or distorted or resisted or muted. That is his bent. And yet, even after a millennium of being bound, we learn that prison has not reformed the devil. He's still the accuser, still the deceiver, sealed and socially distant from humanity, shut in for a millennium. Those things do not rehabilitate him. And once released, he gathers the nations for battle against Christ. He, he gathers them almost like in the same way as in chapter 19. And notice that the nations are given two unfamiliar names. Gog and Magog. Now, these references actually come from the book of Ezekiel. Chapters 38 and 39, where Gog is the king of these northern lands. And Magog, uh, meaning the land of Gog, they come to wage war against the unsuspecting people of God. Now, it's really fascinating. Ezekiel 37 through 39 actually has incredible parallels with Revelation 20. But here we go. In, in Ezekiel 38, 16, it says, God is in control of Gog and Magog, who come and attack, and allows this rebellion. And it says this in verse 16, The nations may know me when through you, O Gog, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. And so here in Revelation, the vision interprets Gog and Magog as symbols of all the nations gathering in opposition to Christ and his followers, just like in Ezekiel, and God is going to vindicate his holiness. So in verse 9, they march upon the church of God, the chosen Israel, positioning themselves to destroy the people of God. But just as we saw in chapter 19, as they try to attack, it's not even a battle. It, the battle ends before it begins. God protects his beloved. Fire comes down and consumes them like in the time of Elijah. And while the nations perish, verse 10 says, The devil will be thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet already have been for a millennium. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever in everlasting torment. Now, of course, the question that we all have is, why? Most of us understand the necessity of Satan being thrown into the lake of fire. That's kind of a no-brainer. You've got to fulfill Genesis. Evil must be dealt with, otherwise there's no heaven. But why? Why is he released at all? And this is the question all students have, no matter what millennial position they may have. Why this drama of binding up Satan only to release him after a thousand years? Uh, why, why not send him directly 
into the lake of fire. I mean, God, you're a little inefficient here. You could have handled this a little bit better. And if you look earlier in chapter 20, verse 3, what does it say? At the very end, it says, until the thousand years were ended, after that, the devil must be released for a little while. Must. Why this divine must? Why this divine imperative? So much of Revelation has been about wrath and judgment. You know, when I, I've never preached more about wrath and judgment than I have in this past year. And when I gather my children on Saturday nights and I tell them, okay, you know, we're going to get ready for Sunday, turn to the book of Revelation. They're like, oh, yes, I know, Dad. Judgment. And perhaps that's something that has occurred to some of you. Whenever you're preparing on Saturday night, thinking about the passage for Sunday, you're thinking, I know what Pastor Steve's going to talk about. He's going to talk about seal judgments or trumpet judgments or bowl judgments. And he's going to talk about the treading out of the wine press of the wrath of God. Or he's going to talk about Armageddon. Chapter after chapter, wrath, 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 and more judgment. And you might ask, and this is a fair question to ask, is God unjust in so much wrath? Is God fair? And so I believe one of the reasons theologians give for why Satan is bound and released is actually quite possible. It's to show the power and utter depravity of humanity. You see, the era of the millennium is an environment of peace. It's not war. Swords are beaten into plowshares. It's a time when there is no social unrest. It's a time when there's no pandemics. It's a time when no one questions the validity of any stolen elections or whatever it is. The world is governed with justice. There's no bullying and there's no defective legislation. Satan's rendered powerless and Jesus is king. Under, everyone is under his loving, benign rule. And what happens? Soon as the devil is released... Men and women forget all the years they have spent with Jesus and fight against them. They flock after Satan. Neither the designs of Satan nor the waywardness of the human heart will be altered by the mere passing of time. We are not merely a product of our environment. No matter how perfect conditions may be, boys and girls, men and women, will build idols and ignore God and choose anything but God because our hearts are incurable. Depravity is total. And so you see the millennium, you see, is the vindication of God that his wrath is truly just and that his punishment is absolutely fair, that sin deserves an eternal punishment because that is the extent of our hardened hearts. And that is why children, children, your parents, your mothers are praying for you. Do you know that, children? 
Do you know that even on Mother's Day, your mothers are on their knees praying for you? Praying for your salvation. Because they love you. They find you adorable. You're their heart. But they also know that growing up in a loving, godly family, you can still be wayward. And they are praying that God would work the miracle in your heart, that, that your eyes would be open to the beauty of Jesus, and that on Mother's Day of all days, that you would go up to your mother and say, Mom, what must I do to be saved? They're working for the Spirit to do that in your hearts. Students can be homeschooled, private schooled, public schooled, and give no regard for religious things for Jesus. Church attenders can attend healthy, Christ-exalting churches and remain in rebellion. And church, such were some of you. Right? You and I know that. This is why, church, we love to sing. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. But for the grace of God, if God had never set his affections upon us to rescue our sinful selves, you and I know we would be running our hell-bound race indifferent to the cost. But praise be to God, but God being rich in mercy, right? It says in Ephesians, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even while we were dead, dead and dead in our trespasses, made us alive in Christ. By grace, you have been saved. We see in verses 7 through 10, the promise that Jesus will deal with Satan. He must be judged. He is a malignant evil. And there is no new heaven and new earth until he is dealt with. But after that, in verses 11 through 15, he turns his attention to wicked men. He must expel sinful man. The new heavens and the new earth will not be heaven if Jesus does not deal with sinners. That's that second promise. Jesus will deal with sinners. Picture the scene here in verse 11. There is a great white throne. White, probably, referring to purity and holiness. And it's not clear who's seated on the throne. It's, it could be God the Father. But Scripture does seem to indicate that Jesus will be presiding. In, in Acts 10.42, it says that there is one appointed by God to be judge uh, by God to be judge of the living and the dead, and that is Jesus. And Revelation says that from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. This is a personification of the created order. Ever since the fall, all creation groans in his bondage to decay, and, and the promise in 2 Peter 3.10 is that the heavens and earth are going to pass away, and everything's going to be revealed. 
I think the sense we get here is that the final judgment is at hand and creation quails at the thought of, or at, at the judgment day. And so everything is out of the picture. There is no people singing, there's no choir, there's no angels flying around, none of that. No earth, nothing, no shouting. It's just the throne itself occupying the entire space. And verse 12 says, the dead, great and small, will pass by that judgment seat. And I take that to mean believers and unbelievers, elect and non-elect. This is a judgment of all people, whether they were raised to life in the millennium or raised to life after the millennium as unbelievers. Everyone will stand before this throne, great and small. No powerful person can buy their way out and no person is so small with too little that they can't, that they will avoid notice. So every single one of you, every one of your children, every child to be born, your grandparents will pass by this throne. Perhaps in some ways it'll kind of be like a commencement ceremony where, you know, they, they call your name and you kind of walk up onto the platform, and when they call your name, they'll, they'll, they'll say it the right way, to pronounce it the right way, and, and then you'll receive your verdict before the throne. And my eternal destiny and yours, ages upon ages of joy, or ages upon ages of punishment, of pain, will be determined by two books. In verse 12, it says, books were opened, plural. But then it talks about one book that was opened, which is the book of life. Now, Revelation 21.7 says that those who are written in the book of life enter into the holy city. So this book is the register of the millions, and we can hope for billions of names who belong to Jesus. Revelation 13.8 says that this book was written before the foundation of the world. He wrote your name there, and he wrote my name there. So these are the elect, those who are supernaturally regenerated by the Holy Spirit, those given the gift of faith and repentance, those who have believed. Now, you don't have to guess and try to be anxious about, like, is my name in the book of life? I don't know if it is. That's not the point. You just think, am I in Christ? Do I trust Jesus? Do I rest on him? Do I cleave to him? Is he my rock of ages? You are safe then. You are secure then. Your name will be in that book because it's not knowledge that gets your name into the book. You can't give away enough money to get yourself into that book. There's not enough church attendance to get you into that book. There is not enough, there's no, quota of gospel sharing to get you into that book doesn't matter how your kids turn out no this is the lamb's book he writes your name in this book he accomplishes the work so that you can be written in this book because we are saved by faith alone romans 3:28 says one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Faith is not a work that we do that merits forgiveness. Faith is the instrument by which we receive and appropriate all that Christ has done for us in his life and death and resurrection. In other words, 
the Lamb's book of life is not full of deserving people, but full of believing people. Anyone who has placed their faith in Jesus, you're not only in this book, but you're declared not guilty. Your name there, not guilty, but the righteousness of Christ. But there is a second kind of book. It says the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And you might think, well, okay, wait a minute. I kind of like that first book of life, but these books don't seem too exciting. Now, these books are the record of God's unfailing memory of all things. In other words, your career is traced. Your biography is written by an unerring hand. And he has recorded every item, every thought, every deed done or known and unknown. Because Jesus says, nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. That's Luke eight seventeen. You know, because sometimes we think that people are going to get away with stuff. We think, they're going to get away with it. Or maybe, I'm going to get away with it. We think we're going to get away with it. We assume it in our ethics and we assume it in our morality. We assume it in, in, in our beds and in our taxes. On computers and in words. They're going to get away with it. We're going to get away with it. But God says, no. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, the Bible teaches that everyone will be judged. God is holy and perfect and he knows all and sees all. And these books are the books of our deeds. A symbol of God's unfailing notice of all our ways. And there will come a day, it says in verse 13, when the sea and its watery depths will give up its dead. And death, which claims the body, will give up its dead. And Hades, which claims the soul, will give up its dead. It's a picture here that every corner of the earth will stand before God. And hear me when I say that this resurrection in verse 13 will not be a good resurrection for you. If you do not have a Savior and you go to stand before God on the basis of those books, you cannot stand. I could not stand. Friend, you must repent of your sins and turn from them and trust in Jesus. Have faith in Christ and the claims of who he is and what he has done. Dying as a substitute upon the cross, bearing God's judgment for everyone who would trust in him. No one will get away with anything. Take this message as God's kindness to you this morning. He has sent this to you as fair warning of the day that is coming. But there's even more that can be said here because the Bible says everyone, believer and unbeliever, alike will be judged according to their works. Matthew 16, 27, for the Son of Man is going to come and he will repay each person according to what he has done. Romans 2, 6, he, Jesus, 
will render to each one according to his works. And listen to this, 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Everyone will be judged, Christian and non-Christian alike. Now you might be wondering, wait a minute, I just, you just went through this whole thing talking to me about being saved by faith alone, and now you're going to say, there's these other books? How do those books work with that first book? And the answer is that the books are not based, are not the basis of our salvation, but contain evidence of our belonging to Christ. They function as a public confirmation of our faith and our union with Jesus. In other words, we are not justified according to our works, but our faith will be evidence confirming the genuineness of our faith. But our works will be evidence confirming the genuineness of our faith. So one day, we're going to stand before the throne, and, you know, maybe God will say, Stephen Chen, written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And maybe some of you who know me are going to say, really? Uh, all right, I mean, like, I, I do know how he treats his children, but, you know, come on. Like, I also know the, what, what he listens to and what music he listens to. And then the books will be opened, the books. And there will be enough evidences of grace that God will be able to make a public display of what is in those books to verify the born-again reality of what is written in the book of life. So listen carefully. Listen carefully. The books that are open do not have to show more good works than bad works. It's not some sort of cosmic scale here. Just think about the thief on the cross. A lifetime of rebellion. And what happens? In the last moments, he's converted. He understands God's holiness and judgment. He repents. He even rebukes those who, the, the, the other person on the cross who is railing against Jesus. He confesses. And when he stands before the judgment seat, he will not have a very long list of good deeds issuing forth from faith. But he will have evidence. There will be evidence of a changed life and that his faith isn't mystical. Imagine that you've been sheltering in place for over a year. Not that hard to imagine, but the rest of it's going to be more to imagine. You've been sheltering in place for over a year and you've just cut off contact with people. And you're single, and you haven't seen anybody, and the vaccines come, restrictions are lifted, and then you go up to your friends and you say, guess what? I'm married. Come, meet my wife. Now, everyone's a little bit skeptical at this point, because they're saying, you know, all I remember before the pandemic was just, this guy just loved playing video games. That was it. Who wants to marry this guy? You know? Nobody saw the ceremony. But then your wife shows up and says, look, he bought me a ring. Look, here's a f scrapbook of our first date together. 
And this is, let me tell you about the way he cares for me and loves me, serves me and protects me. She gives evidence and they say, well, I guess they really are married. It doesn't mean that you have to be a perfect husband, not by a long shot. But there must be ample evidence that you're not just married in your own head. You behave and you act like you're married. Those actions don't establish the marriage. They confirm that they do indeed exist. There are a lot of people who profess to be in a relationship with Jesus, who can, who can answer all the questions on the theological pop quiz, but probably aren't really Christians because there is no treasuring of Christ, no trusting in Christ. They haven't been changed by the relationship. There are no fruits. And when the books are open, there will be no real evidence of faith. Working through love. There must be holiness. There must be holiness. Because Hebrews tells us without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Matthew 6, 14 says, If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others those trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. In other words, if the books are opened and you are harsh and you are hard-hearted and demanding and unforgiving, you won't go to heaven. Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you depart from me. Look, I'm not trying to get all of you to doubt your salvation. But I am deadly earnest that anyone here or online who is living a duplicitous life, a spiritually indifferent life, a fruitless life, to consider what will be revealed about you on that day when the books are opened. I know not everyone agrees that I should preach this way. But I'm compelled to do so because the stakes are too high. Heaven and hell are hanging in the balance. And for me to be delicate about this would be cruelty to you. For me to flatter would only be a poison to you. You don't have to be flawless. You don't have to hope for your works to outbalance your bad works. But you do have to have evidence that your name belongs in the book of life. Because verse 15 says, if your name is not found written in the book of life, you will be thrown into the lake of fire. So ask yourself in the past year, I know it's been a, I know it's been a hard year. It's been a challenging one. But ask yourself in this past year, have you been more like Christ than you were last year? Do you have any sense, do you have any, do you even sense any new and 
better desires in your heart. Not perfection. But are there good deeds done in faith? Perhaps ask yourself if you have loved the people of God. It's a hard thing. But I ask you, have you grown indifferent to the local church? Have you cared and loved and covenanted with your brothers and sisters in the body? Have you prayed for them? Has anyone in the church been comforted by your love? Now, I, I, I say this not because I'm the pastor and I have a vested interest in, in the church or something like that. But I say this because this is one of the clearest delineating marks of the genuine Christian in scriptures. 1 John 3.14 We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Or 1 John 2.9 Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. And you get the sense if you read through 1 John over and over to so many verses. Have you been yearning to be with the people of God to stir them up to love and good deeds? People different from you. People on the other side of the aisle than you. Let us not love in word or talk, First John says, but in deed and in truth. Some of you here and online are Probably not Christians. And I'll say this, that the most dangerous position is to listen and have just enough religion to be damned. To listen and think you're Christian when you're not. Do you know him? More importantly, does he know you? If you are to die tonight and raised after several millennia and the books are open, your life to this date would have no corroborating evidence. And that would be a scary thought. And the answer is not try harder to be a good person. The answer is to run to Jesus. Don't wait. Run to him. Plead with him for mercy. Admit to him all your failures. Ask him for fruit. Ask him for ministry. Say, God, I just don't know. I, I feel, I make my calling and election sure, oh God, because I don't know which way I'm headed. You do not want Christ to say on that commencement day, as you walk past and your name is read, and you stand before him and he just looks at you and says, sorry, I don't know you. I don't know who you are. Church, friends, Christ is coming. He is coming and Satan will be dealt with. And sinners will be dealt with. The books will be opened. All accounts will be settled. May all of us today look to Christ. Look to Christ and show forth our faith in the few years we have here on earth. Let's pray together.
our Father in heaven. You are the God of all comfort. And so while we look at this text and we may feel appalled at what is before us and what it might mean for us and what it might mean for our family members or our friends, God, I pray that you would help us to make our calling and our election sure. Help us to be faithful evangelists, to tell the good news of Christ. Comfort us even should we feel despair at these difficult truths. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.